Welcome to Clinical Research Confidential. On this show, we highlight and demystify the inner workings of this greatly misunderstood activity called clinical research. Now, why is clinical research important? Well, it's the basis for nearly every modern remedy for sickness and a growing method to build trust and solutions meant to optimize health. But it's not for the faint of heart. And so on this show, you'll hear what it really takes to succeed in the clinical research game. I'm your host, Joseph Kim, and I've spent over 23 years in the clinical research industry, now serving as the Chief Strategy Officer for Proof Pilot. Get ready for some adventures as we look into the underbelly of clinical research. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm here with Ulf Hanelius, the President and CEO of Diamed Medical. Ulf, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Um, So we're going to talk about something very interesting today uh, at Research Confidential, and that is the idea that research doesn't always come out the way you want. So while a great many people out there in the general public think, uh, you know, pharma companies and medical device companies and, you know, people who are working on healthcare, you know, we create studies that always, you know, are, are, are stacked, right, that are loaded and will always come out successful. Uh, and having worked at Lilly myself, I've seen billion-dollar drugs fail. And so, Ulf, you have a very interesting story as well with one of your compounds uh, that we'll get into in a moment. So, um, but before we go there, let's talk a little bit about your personal journey in medicine and research. Because yeah. as I understand it, you you started out really at the at boots on the ground level as like a research assistant. Um, tell us more about your education and your first foray into clinical research. Yeah, I mean, so I'm originally from Finland and then I moved to Sweden about 20 years ago. But so I did my after like the the, the high school and college, I went to university and started in chemistry and bridged over to biochemistry, which was closer to medicine, which sounded more exciting than just plain chemistry. So that's probably where my interest in like medicine started, like having this biochemistry background. Then I did my master's and I got the opportunity to move to Sweden with my professor at that time, who became a professor at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. Sweden. So uh, me and a few others from his lab moved to Sweden to start up a couple of labs. And that's how I started my PhD studies as well in molecular biology and genetics. So that's kind of my research background, like biochemistry, molecular biology, uh, genetics. And then I did a postdoc as well in cancer genomics. And in parallel to that, I guess my interest towards the business part of the field started, I, I felt that I probably didn't want to have a research, like an academic research career. I wanted something different. So I, I I started an MBA education on the side, like this executive MBA with a healthcare focus. And that obviously was a big catalyzer for getting in touch with a completely new network of people. And I also had the opportunity to go to Silicon Valley uh, in a different like governmentally funded program. And I worked in a startup in Silicon Valley in a, like a gamification mm. field, which again, put me in contact with a completely different, very interesting field. I uh, visited Google and LinkedIn and all these cool companies. So I think that probably that single one month in Silicon Valley was the trigger for me to say that it's I need to do something different. So I actually quit academia, started my own consultancy company with these concepts from Silicon Valley 
and uh, started working as a consultant, strategy research and market research, which was in retrospect, uh, uh, kind of a naive uh, decision to just quit your job and start your own company. And I obviously <laughs> thought that everyone will buy this concept immediately because it's so cool, but it's it was much more difficult than I thought. I mean, you, I realized the, the difficulty of sales, that you also have to sell things before you can actually <laughs> do the things. But I, I think that... Uh, it, it's been one of the most uh, important decisions in my life because it it uh, it taught me the value of like a month of salary, how much work is behind just a month of salary when you work as a single consultant. Sure. And, and, then, the, con- and the contrast yeah. between like your academic uh, training, which is very scientific yeah. focused, yeah. a lot of bench work too, I imagine. And then you're moving through, you know, get, coming out of the lab and into something to the real world. Like, tell me how that, that, that evolution landed on you yeah i I think it's uh it started with me and some friends having like talking a lot about like more the commercial business side of things Mm -hmm. that we were all in the academia but felt that we we want something else like we want to move into the industry world but how do we do it we just don't want to maybe be the ones who sell pipettes and stuff (laughs) like this we want to like probably change the world like everyone else but there was this interest and i feeling that just following the academic wasn't really my thing. I wanted to differentiate my my profile so that both the MBA and then that sort of starting your own company did that and sort of forced me to into an like out, outside my comfort zone. And that opened up my like uh, eyes completely. I mean, I was ready to but basically work in any industry as long as it's interesting and like rewarding for me. Mm. It didn't have to definitely be in life science, which was my background. And I was also very inspired by like this Silicon Valley mentality where it doesn't matter what your background is, as long as you're interested, hardworking and smart, you can work with anything. Whereas maybe in Europe and Sweden, the Nordics, it's a bit more conservative where you have to sort of stick to your background and don't move uh, like outside your background, which was, but this this sort of created some kind of mental freedom for me that I I could pursue anything that I was interested in. Then it happened that I still was working a lot with life science because I knew that field. So I did most of the consulting in that field. And then I happened to come across an ad in a paper for this diamond medical was looking for a business development person and I did get some pushback from home saying that maybe you should get a real job at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's also always healthy to have someone to bring you back to earth and say, well, maybe you should get real also now and find like a a real job for a change. And then this just happened to be there. Uh, I knew about the company since before uh, and the business development sort of role fit me perfectly because it was both a mix of science and business. Um, so I applied and I, I got the work and the rest is almost history. I got offered the CEO position half a year later, wow. which was a complete surprise. But I, I said yes, and it's that's probably the second most important thing <laughs> in my life. Yeah, good for you. For those in the audience who may not know what business development might mean for a company like Diamed, uh, give us give us a quick overview of what you were doing day to day. Yeah, so we Diamond Medical is a, a, a biotech company uh, in many aspects, virtual, like like many smaller biotech companies are. So we sit on the 
project management, the financial strategy, obviously, and business development strategy, but most other things are outsourced, like manufacturing, clinical trials, uh, work with a lot of consultants. Now we are growing a bit, so we actually insource. Now we sit on manufacturing ourselves, which is a pretty big thing. So we are, we are becoming more of an integrated company now. But for a, like most biotech companies have a business model where it's all about out-licensing. So you do the development up to a certain point, and then you out-license to a larger uh, one or a few larger pharma partners who uh, both bring in the financial resources and the commercialization uh, competence to take it all the way to market. Uh, so for a business development person in a biotech company, it's it's about maintaining uh, contacts to potential partners, updating them with the, the advancements, and obviously aiming for like uh, an out-licensing deal, an agreement, mm -hmm. co-development, out-licensing, not kind of collaboration uh, deal. Uh, and we are a publicly listed company, so but for any company, shareholders are the main stakeholder. I mean, you are working for them; they give you their money so that they could actually make a profit. So, uh, and that's why you want to make the best possible deal also for your shareholders. Yeah. Um, and unlike, so, unlike yeah. say, a big pharma company who's got established commercialized medicines and revenues coming in the door, yeah. biotech traditionally doesn't have that huge oh. amount of revenue, right? It's mostly investor. So it's very critical to have the, the drug, the molecule you're working on, actually get to a point where it's proving some value because the, oh, yeah. that outlicensing is, is the, you know, your, your, your lifeblood. Exactly. So yeah, the outlicensing then it's usually coupled with a, both an upfront, like a payment, uh, usually quite sizable, depending on again the partner and the indication you are in, and then certain milestone payments and then royalties on the future sales. Yep. So that's uh, it's very important, obviously, and it's in our business model as well. And we most likely want to, if possible, retain a certain commercial rights as well, like, sure. for example, the Nordic markets to start building a true commercial company. But you need to, you need the, at some point, the, the help from the larger partners who have the whole, like, logistics in place, because it's not rational for a small company to think that with your first asset, that you will just yeah. cover the whole world yourself. You, yeah. you need to piggyback on someone, and then you can gradually start growing if everything works. Yeah, and so this is what this now we come to the story of one of your molecules where I think this was phase 3 and it was a global trial and it you know the amount of public trust has been eroded in science to some degree and I think for a long time the the true cynics out there uh, or conspiracy theorists believe that pharma companies biotech medical device are creating studies that uh, of of course will prove you know positive but that's not always the case and you have a real life example yeah. of a molecule where it didn't actually pan out the way you planned tell tell us about that story yeah I, I first of all it's important to know that like most molecules that are developed never end up on the market so the like the likelihood to succeed is very small if you start with a sort of preclinical molecule so you are still in animal testing and then from there to go all the way to market, like into the clinical testing and pass all the phases and then successfully commercialize. I mean, it's, it's not many percent uh, that make it that far. Uh, obviously, larger pharmaceutical companies usually step in in a later phase. So the biotech companies take the, let's say, largest development risks. Uh, so you show, show the proof of concept 
that the likelihood that it works is quite high, but then you need to do that final pivotal study to show safety and efficacy and obviously the commercial potential and everything. And it's still not clear that that will succeed. So we had uh, an asset, which is a protein. It's uh, We call it Diamid, just as our company. Uh, it's an antigen-specific immunotherapeutic. So it's quite simply, it's a protein that belongs in the body. So we have the same, it's a re- recombinant version of that same protein formulated in alum, which is a very standard formulation it's used in many vaccines, for example. And what we want to do with that uh, therapeutic is that we want to specifically reprogram the immune system regarding how it sees this protein. Because in an autoimmune disease, in type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease, the immune system attacks the insulin-producing cells. And we know that one of those targets that the immune system in a wrongly recognizes as something dangerous is this protein GAN, which is expressed in those cells. So we want to just show that same protein to the immune system and tell it that this is not something that is foreign, it belongs in the body, stop attacking. And, and this research comes originally from UCLA that we licensed the company already in the 90s. It started with licensing of this uh, uh, patent from UCLA. And then it was taken through the manufacturing preclinical phase, through the clinical phases all the way to phase three. And that's where Johnson Johnson actually stepped in as a partner mm. while that phase three trial was ongoing. But what happened is then everyone believed that this will work. I mean, it was almost like a clear case. It was, it just has to work. But the when the results came, it wasn't significant. So we did see a clear trend of efficacy, but it wasn't a significant uh, effect uh, you didn't like it wasn't below the p-value of 0.05 like that magical yes. pressure it was like a p-value around 0.1 and then well that it was basically then a failed phase three trial uh, we regained back all the rights from J. they obviously pulled out when it didn't work uh, and then we went back to the drawing board saying well it's very safe I mean, there's never been any serious adverse events ever with this thing. And there's clearly an effect, but it, how do we make sure that it, how can we enhance the effect? Right. So looking back, because to get to phase three, it means you've had a positive phase two. Tell us a bit about the phase two, whatever you can, and then where that translation didn't happen in phase three. What, what were your yeah. suspicions? So exactly. So uh there was a phase two trial there, like there were many trials. So this first a small dose sort of finding studies, and then a, a, a actually a smaller phase two trial in another related indication called LADA, latent autoimmune diabetes in adults, which is like type one diabetes, but in older people. Some people call it autoimmune type two diabetes, mm. and which looked positive as well. And then there was this uh, phase two trial in type one diabetics, and uh, that met the primary endpoint. And also there was a, a, a subgroup analysis in that trial showing that, well, if you take individuals who are very recently diagnosed, the effect seems to be even better. So then the phase three was based on that, that, okay, the phase three will be in recently diagnosed type 1 diabetics, otherwise basically a copy-paste of the phase two. So the phase two was successful, and then you go into phase three where you obviously have three times or more more patients. You go to more clinics, you have more patients, so more individuals are exposed in the same trial. 
We had one trial ongoing in Europe with, with around 300 individuals, and in parallel also a trial in the US with around 300 individuals. And then it was the European trial that first had the readout, and that showed the non-significance. And then everything stopped, like the phase three in US was stopped prematurely because the phase three in Europe didn't work. The rights were handed back to us by J&J. Obviously, the share value tanked 85, 90% in a single day. So it was very disruptive. And obviously, everyone thought was thinking, well, what went wrong? What happened here? Uh, because before that, everyone was so, I mean, everyone believed that this will work. We, our shareholders, like J&J, everyone. Yeah, patients, uh, I'm sure. And- Clinicians, well, right? Every, yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I I wasn't with the company at that point, but it's it's kind of what I see now as well to some degree that I know that there were almost like patients knocking on the door to the company demanding that they can be part of a clinical trial. So it was a huge demand. But I, I, I sort of stepped into the company around seven years back now. So it's when all of this had happened, like it was very disruptive, the company split up into two parts the diabetes asset became its own company with a small amount of financing and the, most of the other money that was cash went into a different company that became basically an investment company. And I then there were a number of small trials started, like pilot trial, investigator-initiated trials to see, well, what would be a way to enhance the efficacy, different combinations, way of administering the drug, because investigators knew that it's a very safe drug. There's no risk to the patients. And there's most likely a benefit, but there's no risk definitely. So it was very popular for investigators to try different combinations with this one. And these small trials were ongoing when I stepped into the company. And we started seeing the first sort of signals coming out from these small trials. Yeah, what did what, what were these small trials examining? How are they examining the 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 drug differently? such that you were seeing different positive signals? What were they doing? Uh, exactly. So there were different combinations, like uh, with a, one trial was with our so the immunotherapeutic together with a uh, TNF-alpha inhibitor to see, well, if you first suppress like the TNF-alpha part and then you add the antigen, maybe that could be a way of sort of creating more of a tolerogenic response. Uh, there was one uh, combination with a mild uh, sort of anti-inflammatory molecule. We also had vitamin D in a few of these uh, trials, which we still have actually, because we know that vitamin D, many people are like vitamin D deficient and vitamin D is important if you want to create a tolerogenic response. You don't, never, definitely don't want to be vitamin D deficient. So we actually have that just as a sort of uh, pre-treatment or that you make sure that no one is deficient in vitamin D. But these were different. And then there was one small trial, which is tested injecting our protein directly into a superficial lymph node, Mm. which was the first time ever in an autoimmune disease. So you usually do subcutaneous or intradermal. So we have done subcutaneous. One of our investigators wanted to try this superficial lymph node injection that had shown success in in the allergy field with allergen-specific immunotherapeutics. Interesting. You see, well... What if you do this in an autoimmune disease? Do we get a better effect? Rationale being that you want to bypass the transportation from when you go subcutaneous, you need to, the protein is picked up by antigen presenting cells and transported to the lymph node, and then the reaction happens. Now we went directly into the lymph node, and that with a much smaller dose. 
So this, and that was actually the concept that we focused on and raised money to do a phase 2B trial. So the, then we see it looked like that looked very positive that we get a much more pronounced immune response and it's very safe and the clinical results in an open label trial looked very promising. We didn't have a placebo. But the big thing actually, which happened in 2019 is that we always had these different theories of what went wrong in the phase three. Because if you look at the postdoc analysis that was done in that publication in New England mm -hmm. Journal, in the big, big tree plot, almost everything pointed to the right, like to the significance part, when you all yeah. these subgroups, age, uh, uh, different uh, genotypes, uh, different baseline criteria, only a few things were on the left side. So everything looked very positive, but there was like a gender effect. There looked to be like it works better in males. It looked like it works better in individuals who received it during the springtime. It looked better in non-Nordic individuals. So these trigger different hypotheses that, well, in the Nordics, we have the swine flu uh, epidemic and almost everyone got uh, vaccinated. It was impossible, even if it was in the protocol, that you shouldn't get another sort of vaccine or immunotherapeutic close to the, the our uh, immunotherapeutic. It was impossible to stop basically people from being vaccinated. So there was this theory that maybe that sort of affected negatively our results. Uh, or maybe this vitamin D thing, it's a seasonality thing. In mm. spring, it's more sunlight, you have higher vitamin. Maybe that's the thing. But there were also, you could see on this HLA, which is the key actually, the HLA genotypes that are risk genotypes for or haplotypes for type one, we could see that many of them were really looked significant or borderline significant. So that was also a hypothesis. And then at some point, I'm not exactly sure what how the stars aligned. We sort of started looking into that, saying, well, we can't just sort of superficially look at the data and have speculate. We need to do the proper analysis and like proper meta-analysis and that was picked as the hypothesis because we knew that HLA is not only a risk factor, the main risk factor for type 1 diabetes and most autoimmune diseases, it also seems to determine which kind of autoimmunity you get depending on which gene you have, gene variant. Uh, so if you have a certain one, it look, it's usually these individuals get autoimmunity against GAD, our protein. If you have the other one, you get autoimmunity against insulin. And since we treat with GAD, maybe we should treat individuals who have uh, this specific HLA that associates more with autoimmunity against GAD. So we did then that we had filed patents previously, but then we did the proper analysis in 2019, and it very clearly showed that there's a significant interaction effect between treatment effect and HLA haplotype, and that the, all the effect seems to be in this one subgroup that carries the what's called HLA-DR3-DQ2, which associates with GAD autoimmunity. So, so suddenly it's sort of everything made sense. It just... It's a pretty amazing story because as you looked at the post-talk, as you said, you a lot of other hypotheses sprung up, yeah. but that would have been very expensive to test all of them out in separate... Yeah, and it would have been yeah. a, like a fishing expedition, it would have been... Yeah. And the problem because you want to link your hypothesis to a clear biological rationale, like yep. because there was this hypothesis that maybe it works better in males. But what's actually how do right. you 
what's the rationale? Yes, we do know that, especially in children and like puberty, immune systems develop a bit differently in males and females, but it's still kind of far-fetched. Why would GAD exactly work better in males than in females? And you don't only want to be restricted to treating like males or boys. Sure. I mean, yeah. That becomes also kind of different. So, but this HLA made sense because HLA codes for the receptors that bind antigens and present them mm-hmm. to immune cells and then that form the immune. So, so now it's sort of, it's, uh, it's, it's almost like, why didn't we know it then? I mean, if you treat with an antigen, obviously you need to know that it will be presented differently depending on your genetic variants in the HLA. Yeah. So was it the combination of that genotype and injection into the lymph, lymph nodes that really sort of supercharged yeah. the ability for the for the molecule to do its yeah, thing? Exactly. So we know that the intralymphatic injection seems to like pronounce the effect is even better compared to subcutaneous. So we get a more pronounced immune response. It's uh, like it's a much smaller dose. It's very convenient, like no hospitalization, nothing. But you need to treat the right individual. It, mm-hmm. It's not enough. The intralymphatic, which we believe first that maybe this it's enough that you go the intralymphatic, that will work so much better that it works across the board. But it's still the fact that you need to pick the right individual. And then that's like it will create like the the effect you want. And it's but it's just so interesting that it's it's so rational in retrospect. Yeah. <laughs> it all makes sense, but then you wonder why didn't we do it so much earlier? But the thing, the reality is that there are so many things happening when you have these negative phase three trials. A lot of ideas all over. It's so disruptive that it's you need the time and the field needs to advance enough for everyone to sit down and sort of do that proper analysis. And in this case, also we the type one diabetes field had advanced to the point that. People talked about like this primary autoimmunity, potential maybe endotypes of the disease. And then we sat on something, wait a minute. And then we press released this analysis just a month later, like a paper in diabetes research talking about precision medicine is the way forward for type one. We need to start looking at these maybe subgroups. One size doesn't fit all. We have this HLA, maybe there are different diseases uh, that lead to type one. Here is one, here's the other. And we just sort of a month before that press release that we found our responder group. Yeah. So it's suddenly like everything came together. And you know, I think the silver lining is now you found a drug that works incredibly well if you have the right genotype. Is there a companion diagnostic that comes along with that that is part of standard of care so that you can identify the right patients uh, for for the yes, so what we do is we exactly we do a pre-screening now in the phase three like the pivotal trial we pre-screen all the individuals to check if they have the right HLA haplotype and we haven't developed our own uh, own uh, diagnostic because HLA genotype or haplotype type has been existed for uh, decades basically it's used routinely in the transplantation field where you do HLA matching on like the donor and recipients. So there are a lot of these IVD diagnostics around HLA already approved and in use, so we don't need to invent anything ourselves. There are actually a few clinics I know, at least in Sweden, that routinely do HLA genotyping for any type 1 diabetic. It's So we don't even have to, we already know that this individual will have the right HLA. I think that will become standard quite soon. It probably will be standard for any autoimmune disease. 
because it's so integral to any autoimmune disease like the HLA. Yeah, it's it's funny, not funny, but it's it's interesting how as we do more research and uncover more knowledge about diseases, we recognize that you know what we thought was one disease is two or three or a dozen, right? Cancer used to just be one thing. Yeah. Now it's dozens of diseases, and now we're finding these subtypes in type one, and it continues to create new opportunities for better therapies to target that that exactly. uh, specific subtype. And I think like uh, cancer and oncology field, it's a very good example of what like the kind of incredible advances you can make when you suddenly sort of start focusing on responders and getting it. I mean, someone told me that, well, if you had done this sort of subgroup identification uh, maybe 10 years or 15 years ago, everyone would have thought it's a bad idea because you're sort of, you're going from a relatively, well, it's a large market, but you're going like to only 40% of your potential markets. So that's a very bad idea. But now it's completely different. Everyone knows that find your responders, focus on them. And that's like the key to success. And that's very clearly been in oncology, like with all these blockbusters like Keytruda, which is also mm. all of these kind of today, like the blockbuster, like uh, super drugs have a very interesting story, kind of similar where they were almost abandoned and like uh, the program was almost like uh, put on ice or no one wanted to finance it, but then suddenly something happens and then it's developed and then it's like becomes this massive big thing. So there are so many examples. Usually maybe the biggest drugs have never had like an easy way to market and probably which have some reflections around that, but I think it's because... I think the low-hanging apples have all been taken already, like the mm-hmm. very simple drugs where preclinical models directly just translate to humans. But in reality, a mouse isn't a human. So <laughs> I think it's you need to realize that humans are a bit more complex, and that's why you need to find those responders. Yeah. What I love about this story is that you took a hard look, and like you said, you did the proper analysis. There's a biological component to the upside. and by opening it up to investigator-initiated studies, who also had some good ideas in terms of yeah. methodology, those two things converged and created a really optimal way to deliver the asset in a, in a way that's going to help people directly. Yeah, I think it's it's been really key, like both the persistence of the company and our founder. He's still like, he founded the company in the beginning of the 90s when his mm-hmm. youngest daughter got diagnosed with type 1. So the, his vision has always been to cure the disease and he that's uh I mean, the whole story is just fantastic i hope there will be a book written about this at some yeah, point for sure maybe a netflix series or something like that. <laughs> Who knows? but uh, uh, yeah but it's uh like the persistence and that like that driving vision is very important and that you have a founder who is doesn't give up and who can during these very turbulent times control the company make sure that it doesn't go sort of off track into something else but keep going like pursuing it and then these investigator initiated trials they have been key for us to be able to continue developing it with very scarce resources how like because it's very costly to do sponsored trials but with investigator initiated trials you can do a lot with much less money so that without those i don't think we we would have come as far and been able to do that analysis and then be where we are today. Yeah, it's a fantastic research model. I think the other backdrop to this is, you know, COVID was, during the COVID era, it was the first time the general public saw the messiness of science, right? There was fits and starts, two steps forward, one back, two steps forward. 
And, you know, in behind closed doors, you live this every day. Scientists live this every day where they, they see barriers. Things don't look like they, they, they come out as the plant. They, they go back, reevaluate, go into a slightly different direction and get some good results that way. I mean, oh, you should be very yeah. proud about, you know, what's happened under your watch. What's next for Diamed? Well, right now it's like it's uh, operationally it's all about the phase three, like patient recruitment, like getting all the clinics up and running. Uh, these things, obviously, we are in discussions like we've been for a long time with partners, given our business model again, out licensing, making sure that we find the right partner and the right financial terms. All of these things. Uh, manufacturing is very important. We are, like I said in the beginning, we are we have taken over the manufacturing of the protein. It's not outsourced anymore. So we are building our own manufacturing, which will, I believe, bring a lot of opportunities in the future. But it's obviously a, a challenge to do that as well, to build your own manufacturing capabilities. But that's most of the focus is really phase three manufacturing right now, making sure all of that work is done as well as possible. We have another asset in the clinical trials as well, we will quite soon get the the top line results to see if and how we will focus on that as well. It's also in diabetes. And we are going into the prevention space as well. So uh, we are now the phase three since so-called stage three type one, which is recent onset type one, clinical type one diabetes. But we are also moving into the stage one, stage two, so high-risk individuals, which we've done before in actually investigator-initiated trials looks very promising there is the same hypothesis it looks like the right with the right hla high likelihood of working so and then we recently disclosed uh, uh, results from a small trial in this lada indication like the autoimmune type 2 which also looks very promising and same hla thing there it's, it seems with right hla it seems to so to work so there's a lot of opportunities so i guess like for any biotech, anytime, but especially now, it's all about even more resource prioritizing. How do we like maximize value with the resources we have? And financial strategy is very important in these times as well. So it's it's a lot about these things. Like we know that we have a fantastic asset in place, but now we need to sort of do the operational work and all these things and see what would bring most value to the company uh, with the resources we have and all these things. So it's... Uh, there's a lot to do, but it's it's very exciting. Very exciting. And I think for this condition where there's been no good, no good ther- long-term therapy for for real, this is this provides real promise to patients with diabetes. Yeah, it, it does. And it, it well, again, I wasn't with a company when the previous phase three program was run, but I know then there were several phase three programs with different big pharma partners involved like and so the type one field was really close to like a breakthrough then i think the whole field thought that now now it happens like before 100 years of insulin we will get something new well it didn't happen all those phase three sort of failed for one or another reason now it's been 100 years since insulin but it's i have the feeling i'm a bit biased but that we are back in that same it took 10 years to sort of get back for the type 1 diabetes field to recuperate from those phase 3 failures. It's very similar to the Alzheimer's field with mm. all these failures, one after the other, and like investors sort of get disappointed and move somewhere else. Big Pharma gets disappointed, does something else. And then suddenly you first have, well, you had one one approval, which was obviously this discussed if it was correct or not like with the Adjuhelm and these things and now you have the Bioarctic, a Swedish company with ASI and Biogen again coming up with fantastic results so I feel that 
the Alzheimer's field is like going through something yep. like major breakthrough right now. And I have the feeling that type one is very close to same thing that now we are again at that cusp that mm-hmm. might be like the field is changing the treatment paradigm. So it's, 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 it's very exciting. And I feel the whole field is sort of now getting a lift. Ulf Hanalas, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for sharing this story. Too many success stories out of the gates get told. It's good to see something that has fell, but then came back like Phoenix from the ashes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again for spending time with us today. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to Research Confidential. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information about us, show notes, transcripts, and resources, please visit proofpilot.com. If you'd like to debunk a clinical research myth, share some war stories, or maybe just show our audience what kind of heroics it takes to pull off gold standard research, send us your thoughts, episode ideas, and more to help at proofpilot.com. This show was presented by Proofpilot and is powered by Outcomes Rocket. Outcomes Rocket.